0: Hello, our lovely listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Cam Hunters, the podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, my name is Steffi McKnight, and I'm one of the two co-hosts of the podcast with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Julia Chan. Before we get started, I wanted to wish you all a very happy new year. I myself am dubbing 2023 a year for care. In fact, my resolution this year is to extend more care to others and to myself. I am pledging to prioritize my mental health, capacity, limitations, and boundaries in all constellations of my life, such as my artistic practice, scholarly practice, and personal life. I encourage you all to do the same while also recognizing that self-care and capacity looks and feels different for everyone. Self-care that is taught and repeated in the media is often rooted in colonial ideations and are classist, ableist, heteronormative, and often appropriate important cultural practices from non-white folks in the world. Being mindful and careful means to also disrupt and think about the ways that institutions and systems appropriate practices of care for consumerism and capitalism. The driving theme of this season's podcast is care and pleasure and learning and discussing ways to disrupt and rethink colonial, racist, and heteronormative technologies of surveillance through acts of collaborative care and pleasure. This week, we are very fortunate to speak to Dr. Susan Cal and Mel Hogan from the University of Calgary on their care-centric methodologies for collaboration while navigating today's world. Dr. Susan Cal is a white settler scholar who lives and works in Mokkistis, Calgary on the traditional territories of the peoples of the Tree 7 region. She's an independent filmmaker, curator, and associate professor of art history at the University of Calgary. Dr. Mel Hogan is Director of the Environmental Media Lab and Associate Professor of Communication, Media, and Film at the University of Calgary. Her research focuses on data centers, death in the cloud, and genomic media, each understood from within the context of planetary catastrophe and collective anxieties about the future. Without further ado, we welcome Susan and Mel. Hi everyone, and thank you so much for being here. We are so fortunate to have two incredible scholars and collaborators, Susan Cal and Mel Hogan. Uh, So we're going to go right into it. And can you just explain a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do together?
1: Do you want to go first? Sure, since you're setting me up so beautifully. (laughs) Uh, So I am Mel Hogan. I'm the director of the Environmental Media Lab at the University of Calgary. I'm also an associate professor in the Department of Communication, Media and Film. And I love doing anything with Susan. And so it's just more enjoyable. We think through things, I think, uh, more deeply together. And yeah, it is uh, genuinely more enjoyable. So that's why we thought we would, um, even though we work on different projects, we, would, we, would, we wanted to do this um, conversation together.
2: Oh, man, that's nice. Um, so I'm <laughs> Susan Cal, and I'm a white settler. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm an associate professor of contemporary art history at the University of Calgary. And um, I work broadly on the art of surveillance in a multitude of contexts and have an ongoing collaboration with my bud and colleague, Mel. Um, So I'm really happy to be here with her and with Julie and Steffi today to have some, um, I guess, broad and hopefully somewhat informal chats.
0: I really love that setup because I say this probably every episode how much I love working with Julia so it really warms my heart to have another couple partners collaborators here who talk about how how excited they are to work together because I feel Mm. that every time I see Julia on this little screen yeah
3: it's a nice little balance so do you maybe want to talk
2: a bit about um your current research each of you I can go first on this one Mel since I put you on the spot I can see you looking at me already so um So my own research is broadly on the decolonial project to dismantle settler surveillance imaginaries. So I work in art and surveillance and creative projects that think through um, operations of surveillance as a vehicle for naturalizing white settler colonial life on the land. And I'm talking predominantly on like the Northern North American or the Canadian context for that. So that's what my own research broadly looks at. And so my current work, although I also want to preface, and would love to talk about how thinking about our current work within the pandemic, within mid-career pressures, how work takes a really particular role in your life, that the research that you're doing really gets sidetracked in particular ways, um, that I think is an important conversation. But um, the, the current work that I'm attempting to do as much as possible is thinking about um, the precision of surveillance viewing as colonial viewing, that surveillance itself is a white supremacist logic And to think through that needs to tether those two together in really particular and foundational ways. So that's what I'm doing through creative projects that intervene and think through those dynamics and contexts. And so that's my specific work I do on my own. And then Mel has her own project and then we can talk a little bit maybe about our collaborative work. Yeah, sure. So
1: I don't work on Uh, surveillance explicitly, or I haven't in a few years, but it's always one of the currents, probably the word surveillance appears in everything I write. Um, But there was a time a couple of years ago where I focused um, more specifically on surveillance in and through um, internet materialities or internet infrastructure. So my work is mainly around data centers, and around the environmental impacts of internet infrastructures like data centers. And so there was a case that was really interesting. Uh, I think I wrote about this in like 2015, which is a bit, you know, a little bit blurry now, but it was basically how the NSA data center um, was using up a lot of water to to function. Surveillance Mm -hmm. requires a lot of, um, I want not say natural resources, but like kind of in quotes. So it uses a lot of water, a lot of energy. Um, and what I loved about that story was that activists had actually, you know, contemplated uh, shutting off the water um, to the data center, which would prevent surveillance. And I really um, loved that as a case study. And there were other kinds of activism that were um, similar in terms of using landscape or or nature in some way to intervene in the surveillance apparatus. So I really, I really liked that. And then I wrote a more speculative piece. Um, because there were also a lot of articles you probably all know about this, but when the NSA data center, uh, you know, was up and running, um, there were obviously people working within uh, within those centers who had access to uh, incredible amounts of data and surveillance like uh, capabilities. But a lot of but there were a few people, I think eight officially uh, NSA workers who were busted for spying on ex girlfriends or ex partners. And so mm-hmm. I was really fascinated by like you know how we you can't disentangle sort of these you know these kind of technologies from uh those really sort of basic everyday impulses to to you know to to do shit like that so um so those were the two main main pieces and then like i, I said like just sur- it's very hard to not think of surveillance in and through internet infrastructure like basically the whole apparatus is there um for surveillance and often under a different name you know it's not like presented as a a tool for surveillance it'll be there for like i don't know health tracking it'll be there for uh monitoring environmental things but all of it is ultimately surveillance and so all of this data that we're generating is in some way a question of surveillance as well so it just it's just sort of like comes to the forefront more or is like um sort of understood in and through other concepts but surveillance is is always there if you're talking about the internet that's really interesting.
3: I'm just going back to the comment you made about the um, the data center workers uh, using their access to that data to kind of surveil people that they know, and how you know there's these sort of um, different tracks of conversation we have around surveillance in, in terms of like big data versus kind of interpersonal surveillance, and um, I was. I was listening to um, your data center industrial complex podcast, specifically the faceless suit people um, (laughs) episode. So, for everybody listening, uh, Mel has a podcast called Data Center Industrial Complex. And there was, so in part of that episode, you talk about how there's this sort of representation of data centers as faceless, which I thought was really interesting. And It made me think of <laughs> this is a bit left field. It made me think of this film, this comedy film called Sex Tape, um, starring Cameron Diaz. And um, in it, there's this tape, tape, quote unquote, it's actually a digital file um, that the Cameron Diaz character films with her husband. And it gets um, uploaded to the, I think it's YouPorn, Porn um it hasn't gone live yet but it's on their servers so they go they travel to uporn to try to um, stop it to talk to somebody basically and when they get there it's this huge like complex in the middle of nowhere with no people and just a huge bank of computers um hmm. and so I guess I'm, I'm just interested in that whole idea of like the representation of surveillance and of data centers and I'm wondering um, like this idea that this is some sort of autonomous technology. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on like, what are the implications of that, that sense of of surveillance and and big data being
1: mm-hmm. people-less? Mm-hmm. Well, I think your story actually illustrates it really well. This idea that you would have a file that would be, you know, in the cloud, but yet, that you would be able to locate it is really interesting to me. Um, the reason I got to studying data centers was in fact, doing a dissertation on, Um, a video art archive in Ottawa that had not been maintained and then they had lost everything and then it turned out that the video files were on a server in Texas. And for me, that was a moment of like, what, like, why are they there? And then I just had never thought of the, you know, the storage and the infrastructure. And what's really interesting is that, you know, there are times where you can locate a file because you have paid a particular server to host uh, your files. But more often than not, um, that cloud is really distributed and I remember I would take students when I when I was working in Chicago to a data center that was really high security like you had to have like a whole bunch of ID you know they you they had like two or three people like following us around a class of eight or nine people and we would go through um these data centers and at one point you know the the leader of the group said you know there was a time here where the FBI just came in with a USB stick walked up to one and this is, I mean, there are like millions of hard drives in this. Uh, it was one of the biggest data centers in Chicago. Millions of hard drives. So he was telling us in the class. He said, the FBI came in one time and just like stuck a USB stick into a hard drive and removed a file and walked away. And so what was interesting about that story was that. The people running the data center did not know whose files they were hosting. They had no sense. They had they actually didn't want to know. They don't want to get involved. Mm. They were also blown away that like an agency like the FBI would know. Like how is it that they know specifically on in like if 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 people haven't been in a data center, basically it just looks like stacks of hard drives, like kind of in lockers, and it's just like a whole bunch of wires, and you walk through, and it's just like. Basically rows of you know very cool like uh, hard drives, and in the back is very hot where all the heat comes out and all these wires. So it's like a, a very nondescript space, and it's sort of mind blowing. So in terms of like just a, an extension from your story, it's just this interesting idea that you know where files are located within this infrastructure um, is something that you would need like incredibly high end technology <laughs> to be able to locate in this way and most people running and managing data centers are um, completely clueless as to the types of data that runs through the infrastructure. So I don't know. I just thought that that was like kind of, um, not that he let it slip, but I don't know that we should have like had access to that kind of information in a top security environment anyway. On the other hand, there are wires hanging everywhere and he would point and say that's worth billions of dollars that one wire if that were cut that's billions of dollars and i was like again (laughs) should you be telling us this anyway so the it's very precarious it's very high like it's very like high security on the one end like they really um you know they they at that stage they weren't scanning retinas and IDing like fingerprints for visitors but they did for workers. And what was interesting is one of the workers there had was a bass player and had no fingerprint and would use someone else's thumb. And so it's like, on the one hand, the theater of high security in these spaces. And on the other hand, a kind of sloppiness around how these surveillance infrastructures are, they're not actually well <laughs> contained. There's leaks everywhere, I guess. Anyway, so it's just like this interesting space when you go in, you're privy to all these kind of side stories right that the infrastructure itself doesn't reveal so kind of love that about like ethnographic work
2: mm. so interesting this that, that story thanks for sharing that mel it, it's like it speaks to kind of this this tech bureaucracy like the surveillance mm-hmm. bureaucracy around it and that like In conventional representations of surveillance, it's like, you know, a security guard in front of a whole bunch of CCTV screens, or like the conventions, the panopticon, like this eye that's watching out and has this control and holds all the knowledge. And it's interesting to think about the distributed forms of knowledge that that occupy broad notions of surveillance that there's not, you know, the FBI has some access into, in this case, you're saying of coming in and being able to access one, but the people who work at the center, the knowledge is so distributed that there, it, it's hard to know where it's held and who's managing it clearly, to, to think about those leaks and to think about um, who manages the files in really clear ways.
1: And, and just one more thing, I'm thinking about that particular data center is, at one point there were really like intense protests in Chicago, but I can't remember what what the protest was about. Um, but often, you know, it it like there's a lot of security during protests in Chicago. I don't I it might have been, I think it was before Black Lives Matters, but it was like that big, right? And so um w- what was interesting about that data center is that a whole bunch of security guards at like basically military level security had been deployed to surround the data center, but the workers at the data center were not aware of who had called and who had who had come to protect them like they hadn't put out that call because it's quite hard to get in and it's a relatively safe building and protesters are not necessarily thought to be like coming in or or even aware right you would not know as just a random person in Chicago that that space is a data center but it was interesting that again there's a real protection for cloud infrastructure because it's a surveillance apparatus like this serves Mm -hmm. very specific ends ultimately right and so they were just blown away that like basically the military had, be call- had been called to surround the building during these protests and guarantee protection they had nothing to do with it so I mean I think that that connects uh, really well with what is being protected.
0: I think what you're saying though Mel is very on brand with what I think also Susan's saying in terms of these cloud structures and these buildings and these data sets they are white supremacist machines and they are created for a very specific purpose and they're watching very specific people despite the the idea that they're watching all of us Um, it's uh, a lot of data to well, we talk about this, you know, the idea of transparency and and then the more data, it looks like everybody's being watched, but we know there's a select. So in terms of the two of you and your collaboration, how does this fit within your work? Uh, Susan, you're coming from a very specific positionality of looking at surveillance as a settler machine or a settler, white settler idea. And then Mel, you're looking at these data sets that are also created and governing how we move throughout space or who be, is able to move throughout space. Yeah, um,
2: so I think it actually connects in an unexpected, but a really clear way that I don't think Mel and I realize until we really started talking about it because we, you know, our relationship, our collaboration starts as a friendship um, mm-hmm. and one that started as collegial and then moved into, you know, like actual friendship beyond just being colleagues. And um, Mel came with an idea of thinking about the environment and thinking about the way in which um, uh, these authoritative institutions of science and medicine really structure kind of humanity's relationship to it. And um, when we talked about it, we realized what our working kind of visions or perspectives come through is the way in which knowledge connects to like the land and the environment. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about authoritative structures such as medicine and science and, and all these logic, they kind of come together within these kind of colonial logics and settler attachments to the land and control and domination and you know, authoritative structures. So we kind of came together using, um, we, we realize I guess, we're, we're using kind of the same frameworks, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're turning that framework on different case studies, but that thinking about what are the logics that determine what we know, who knows and to what ends, really um came through in in what we we're working on so I think the first piece is um oh my gosh I can't remember uh conditions of a planetary diagnosis that's not it
1: diagnosis of a planetary condition there you go word salad there and <laughs>
2: <like, laughs> most of it it's like a mad libs so it kind of came through it came through um that and then we kind of have worked that into um on a few other pieces and um presentations so it kind of came through in a perspective into different case studies but I think I know through through working with Mel, um, it, it creates a knowledge for me that I could not get on my own, right? Mm-hmm. So, the, so the dialogue between us produces something greater than the sum of its parts, right? Which I, I don't know, I find really interesting as a collaborative endeavor. Mel, what do you think? Yeah, I think like, uh, I
1: was just saying over the last decade, I feel like the conclusion to everything I write is that we are reinforcing a white supremacist you know um eugenicist like that like that that's the direction and that's like the sort of like everything that we're building is to sustain that uh i would say in some ways enhance and solidify that and then to also deny it right like to to be able to um code it as other things such as like um um, security or like um i don't know i'm fascinated by like the the health and wellness industries how they will take something that is obviously about a very neo- neoliberal eugen like with eugenics tendencies i think always uh, ways of understanding health so there's something happening through the discourse that's reinforced in and through those technologies that then is upheld in these massive material infrastructures that are also real estate and land investments and like become custodians over nature i know i've written a lot about how big tech is essentially taking over the management of quote-unquote natural resources but i think it's like in the end the practice the the building itself of those they're like monuments in a sense to white supremacy and to um yeah like to a kind of you know fascist um future in some sense and i you know i often think of like you know everything that we're sensing right now is really uh i think uh, like we're, we're going towards the right right everyone has this feeling that like politics are curving really to a, a quite a far right and i would say well yes we have seen we have built that infrastructure for that to happen it is more profitable to have misogynist racist content on the internet. like we have we have set this up it's not like it happened despite our best efforts it is that we have set that in motion and now that is working out as planned and I really I really think that we shouldn't be too surprised by the outcomes of this thing that we have um invested in uh, so greatly so um yeah and I think in terms of our collaboration with Susan is that I'm more like um I think usually at the level of like stories and headlines and Susan has this incredible depth theoretical depth and so in terms of collaborations, like we have shared interests, but also I think a compatibility in terms of uh, bringing strengths together when we work together. Right. So I like that a lot.
0: Following up on that. One of the things that Julia and I have talked a little, oh, I mean, a lot about in terms of our collaboration and also in the context of this podcast, one of the things that we really wanted to set up for the podcast this season was really talking about care and pleasure in the context of surveillance and, and collaboration and, and being uh, two people that we engage with on a day to day basis. And in, in this attempt at creating a methodology that is anti colonial, anti heteropatriarchal, you know, that's queer uh, in our own way, that's anti racist. So I'm wondering is that something that, or are those threads that come throughout your collaboration, or have you thought about care and pleasure as as a foundation for the two of you working also against this? the surveillance machine or this colonialism and, and such, because I do think that care is really important. Um, And I think we can, at least from what Julian and I are trying to do is that some a lot of our care is all is impacted uh, in terms of our methodologies, but also just the fact that the two of us are handling surveillance in very specific different ways, uh, through our subjectivities, and we're working together to care for each other, I think, through this as well
2: we talk about care all the time, like legit all the time. It's in our friendship. It's in our working relationships. It's in our collaboration. It's, it's kind of all we talk about. And a lot of that comes from feeling really uncared for, Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of different ways, especially now during the pandemic, feeling really unsafe, feeling really uncomfortable, feeling really um, unfamiliar in relationships that have destabilized and changed within the conditions of the pandemic. And so for me and Mel, I won't speak for you, but I, th- I think you'd echo this is that Mel has become a really important community for me, intellectually, mm-hmm. emotionally, you know, personally, professionally. And so we do talk about care and we talk about care and how we work with each other, about how we teach, about how we work with colleagues, about how we fit within the communities that we identify with. And I think in terms of our work and collaboration that comes into and in kind of ethics and practices of accountability.
0: Mm-hmm. So-
2: who do we owe this work to, right? Who do we speak for and who do we speak with and what are the limits of that? And so when we talk a lot about the work, we have to do a lot of care and self-reflection for both of us, for ourselves and each other. And I know Mel has checked me caringly on multiple occasions to like force me to think of things that I, I didn't have to based on whatever systems of privilege and unaccountability I have kind of been floating through. And I hope I can do the same for her at different times, right? And so I think when we were doing, when we started this collaboration, a big part of it was we wanna think about what are the ethics of this research and who are we accountable to? So really defining ourselves as a community, as like a collaborative community of the two of us, but also thinking who do we want this work to be for and who can we ethically speak to with that work? So care functions, you know, personally, intellectually, emotionally, professionally at a multitude of different levels and I think is foundational, absolutely foundational into, I don't know, to, to all aspects of a relationship. Yeah, uh, yeah, I
1: have so many <laughs> feelings uh, about this particular question, Steffi. I think it's it's really great. I think in academia, we're sort of expected to be disembodied. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you're not supposed to. Your body's like not accounted for. It's not supposed to fail. It's not supposed to be. You know uh, on any kind of disability leave and if it is you keep it hush-hush like it's very it's like a complicated way of being in a space that really reminds you constantly that you can care for yourself but like you got to keep the hustle up right and you got to keep up a particular facade and if anyone's like helping you out it's just kind of like a, a, a favor but like don't push your luck so it's a rough space to work in and I'm always sort of blown away that like this job to me is the best job in the world, but also everyone wants to quit and everyone's low key, like mm-hmm. fantasizing about another way of life. And like, maybe that's just true. Uh, it's certainly more true in the pandemic, but I think there's something about academia where um, like it's, it's painful, like it's a painful profession. Um, and so I'm always fascinated by, by that a little bit, like the acceptance that it's supposed to be so grueling and that we pay for it ultimately in our bodies most of the time right and that how do you how do you mentor how do you disrupt some of those things how do you just imagine different kind of academia in a place where like you're always doing that it's always like you're always doing it sort of on your own like it's very hard to get to do any sort of like collective Uh, activism a collective sort of caring within academia there's a sense of like really being alone so when you do find um I've trailed it so far off the question but but I feel like there there's something when you do so I always think about how the university you know will will, like our president actually says this like we're a big family or whatever and I think yeah only in so far as families are actually quite dysfunctional and kind of terrible (laughs) often so like sure that's the metaphor you're trying to make but like I think this, I think that what it does is that often colleagues, like, don't know the difference between, uh, uh, you know, someone who works in the office next to you versus a friendship. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm fascinated by this idea of friendship in academia. And like, who really stands up for who, who goes to bat, like, you know, in these really like, deep ways that are beyond this, like, facade of, of, of family relations as per university discourse, which just means, like, you should hustle extra, you should take a lot of hits, you should sort of, you know, be there at all costs, like, etc., whatever this notion of family is supposed to, like, bring up. But um, anyway, so, yeah, I just, I, I'm just fascinated by collaboration Friendship beyond sort of your colleagues um, and what's possible and made impossible within these spaces. Um, i trail off, but yeah, those are some thoughts. Well, to bring it back to surveillance,
3: I, you know, this, <laughs> to talking. Well, no, but, but like and in talking about care, you know, in in sort of surveillance theory, there's that continuum of care and control, and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I find it so fascinating that, you know, as scholars engage with surveillance, um, you've also kind of turned to that other aspect of surveillance, which is care, in order to kind of navigate um, the academy, um, and, and also just life.
1: Yeah, I like the way you ask it, Julia, because it sounds like surveillance and care are sort of the and antithetical, like you have mm-hmm. surveillance or care. So pick one. You know, it's like it's kind of funny to think of care as the flip side of, of surveillance, but I think there's something to that.
2: I think there's absolutely something to that because I think surveillance is the idea. Is it's can you know, so I mean, it's like all I have like 25 systems of neural systems firing at once. I'm like, which angle to go here? Um, surveillance is so imprecise as a term, right? Like we throw surveillance around, like it's a thing we all identify with and there's, you know, we can, there's AI and there's, you know, policy and there's like all these cameras, all these really specific systems, but surveillance, when we talk about it often becomes really imprecise. And I think a good way, a unifying way to think about it is a logic. It's a really particular Mm -hmm. type Mm -hmm. of logic, right? And that undergirds or underlies all of these different systems, but it takes a different form in a lot of different ways. But I think there's probably certain characteristics we could we could make a list of that would I that we'd all broadly say, like, yes, this is part of the system of surveillance logic, um, as we understand it broadly, in like this very broad, like different locale, globalizing term. And one of them I think is dehumanizing. And is this really specific mm-hmm. form of individualizing that is supposed to provoke like fear and instability in relations. So I do think the antithesis of surveillance in many ways is care and community. Because it's supposed to provoke intimacy and attachments that you can't get from a bird's eye view or you can't get from, you know, snippets of surveillance of like, Mm -hmm. like tapping into someone's computer and stuff. And so I think relations and kinships and and of course I'm drawing from like this, this is not my thinking, this is thinking I've taken from particularly black scholars, indigenous scholars, this idea that it's kinships, relationality and creating communities of care, that will always be the antithesis and challenges to systems of surveillance that seek to um, chop us up and dehumanize and individualize in really um, unpeopled ways, you know? So I do think care is, I mean, I think care and community is also a reaction to capitalism. It's also a reaction to, like, I think that it's a multitude of those systems of which surveillance is not disconnected from, right? In fact, I think it's foundational to systems of capitalism and colonialism because it's extractive, right? And so I do think systems of care, community, and intimacy, building relationships and kinships, I think is key. And it's key to health, it's care to survival, it's key to challenging systems. Um, yeah, so so I agree. I think I, I think care in many ways is the antithesis to this broad kind of semi-undefined notion of what we talk about when we throw around the term surveillance.
1: This is why I love working with Susan.
0: <laughs> I love that too, because it's true. Like, I don't think you can have surveillance without... Um, I mean the whole thing about surveillance is that it is so anti-careful like there is you can't in order for it to function you can't actually care about the individual completely or wholly as what you're saying Susan as as dehumanizing as chopping them up into pieces Um, so I wonder and I think Julia and I thought about this is you know the question is what is the antidote to surveillance and is that care is that pleasure and I think Kara Page says it very well in terms of other forms of of healing justice uh you know like what is it that we can do to we can't at this stage I don't think we can eradicate it but it's how do we <laughs> go through it in ways that um it's not you know dehumanizing or eating us up or that we can go through those struggles in ways that are supportive or that we're supporting others uh, in the hopes that maybe eventually, I don't know, how do you, how do you make a careful surveillance? Like I don't, because it's so anti what the, the purpose is.
1: I think a good example of this, I'm just thinking of this as, as you're saying that Steffi, is that like, if we wanted to have, like, it's funny that surveillance, the surveillance apparatus falls apart, something like in and through the pandemic where surveillance or at least tracking of the spread of the pandemic would have shown to be a way to mitigate some of the impacts, right? And so it's funny that to me surveillance doesn't work when the end would be for towards a collective sort of care uh, end. Like why is it that like we can do NSA level surveillance, um, that we can do surveillance, you know, for like terrorism, for all sorts of things but when we apply some of these same technologies to something like managing a pandemic, then we abandon the project so quickly, right? So I'm just thinking, like, it is really antithetical because as soon as care is sort of the end goal, we just abandon, like, those those systems. It's so fascinating to me.
2: And I think also, you know, again, I think it's we have to think about surveillance not as this monolith thing that's that's, you know, placed on all people equally, because there have been lots of surveillance that's super amped up. So policing and surveillance has amped up um, within the pandemic, Um, student surveillance, so online Mm -hmm. companies that I won't mention, I guess, publicly because of, you know, current lawsuits that are going on by, by calling these companies out. But You know all these systems that are monitoring students that have shown to have incredible racist, uh, racialized, or racist sorry, Mm -hmm. racist and ableist tones to them, right? That they're really they're marking certain students as problematic just by um, the systems they've set up to track them during exam taking. So Mm
0: -hmm. I think
2: that you know surveillance isn't a monolith, and I and I think in some ways we can say you know the opposite of surveillance is care or you know and community on this, but on the other hand is that I think all of us as scholars and all surveillance scholars are generally have to be more precise and localized in what we mean when we operationalize the term like surveillance, right? Because it, it's not, it doesn't exist beyond the discourse, whether that's material or it's abstract or conceptual, um, because it, it is mobilized in really unequal ways and in different contexts and two different ends. So I think it's, you know, we can say it in broad terms, surveillance and care are opposite ends of a spectrum, but I but I do think that spectrum is not like a linear one mm-hmm. plane thing, right? It actually um, exists in a, in a multitude of levels and needs to be flushed out in much more precise terms so that we can get to the specifics of, of what we're talking about and what we need to do.
3: I wonder if there's a way to conceptualize surveillance. I mean, there is a way to conceptualize surveillance in terms of care um, and, you know, some some feminist scholars have started, ha- have done this um, and maybe not use the, the term care. You know, for example, like parenting is a form of surveillance, you know, like, so is there a way for us to kind of seize the surveillance apparatus in such a way that we can, or the logics of surveillance in such a way that we can turn it towards care as opposed to control? I mean, that's a really big question. And obviously that's not going to track evenly across different um, modes of surveillance or or, or demographics. But um,
1: I don't I think know. this ties into your work, Julia, but like, I think what makes it either surveillance or not is, is kind of this idea of consent. And I think that's a little bit tricky mm. when you're a parent, mm. like to get like a toddler to consent is like, mm-hmm. uh, is tricky. But I know that a lot of your work is on consent. And I think like, um, examples of you know people consenting into tracking each other or whatever if you're like I'm thinking of the example of sex workers you would let someone know where you're going and uh, you would have a sort of a plan for keeping each other safe so there's kind of like a tracking but it's very consensual and it's like by design in this way um, I think the example of parenting is really interesting too because you do keep track of your kids all the way till you know basically they're adults because that's kind of your role but I think there's there is usually a kind of consent implied in that and I think where where it becomes not caring is when it's done covertly like I think mm. that's maybe as simple as that but yeah I know that you've done more work on consent and like the nuances of that term but I think that's one of the elements maybe
3: mm-hmm. yeah that's really interesting um I have a totally different question <laughs> that came up while we were talking earlier about um surveillance and land and environment so if we just kind of go backwards um because both of you seem to in different ways engage with this idea of the land and and the environment and in terms of colonial logics and i'm just curious to know if you have any thoughts about the metaverse as a space
0: oh my god i'm dying as a surveillance space (laughs) oh my god julia that is such a julia question i love it (laughs)
1: I kind of want to know what Susan thinks before
2: I pipe up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: have you ever thought about the metaverse?
2: <laughs> Look, I can say without even an ounce of shame that I have never thought about the metaverse. Or if I've thought about it, it's because someone said the term, and i was like, oh, I've never thought about the metaverse. I I have, I have, really, <laughs> I, I wouldn't even know how to begin to address this, but I can't wait for Mel to say something and for me to agree to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I don't know. I mean, I think the metaverse
1: is like, in a sense, it's just going to exacerbate all the problems that we have in quote-unquote real life. Like, I just, I don't see it as a, a space that can even begin to mitigate some of the violence that we see here and now, because it will be, you know, it'll be a space that will profit off of those things, because those things will be what people go to the metaverse to do. I mean, this is sort of like an old story, whether it's like Second Life or sims or whatever i'm just like these are spaces that become outlets for sort of you know at least for some part of of the metaverse for like playing out things that you you wouldn't get away with um outside of the metaverse and i don't think that these tech bros running these companies have any sort of um idea of what's coming and or any interest in mitigating those i think those will be that will be sort of a model for generating new kinds of income like those spaces. So I have, I don't know the metaverse, I think like we're going to see a lot more um, augmented and virtual reality. That will just be um, a huge part of our lives. Probably all of our meetings, probably everything we're doing like now in 2d. Uh, I don't know if that will be part of the metaverse though. I, I don't know. I don't know how, how much of it, like how conceptual the metaverse is right now, um, and how it, maybe it'll be metaverses, like maybe it'll be very, like many spaces uh, that are virtual, but, um, you know, where you feel sort of embodied, where you put on the glasses and jump in. But what I'm fascinated by is how addictive that world already appears to mm-hmm. be, and the headsets mm. that they sell, I think intentionally only last a few hours, but people have been using them while well, plugged in you know they have their little headset and they're like on their couch and they make sure they're like near the plug and i think by design they were made so that you would probably have to take them off and charge them but people are so hooked that they're kind of trying to stay hooked in all day and so that's coming for us so some version of that is, is coming uh for us and so yeah it'll be really i think quite inevitable and really uh really startling. And I think, (laughs) I don't know if there's ways to resist that or what kind of activism is going to respond to, um, to that as our sort of, it could, because in a way we also abandon, um, we abandon, you know, the environment that we're in that is not virtual and um, it can look really beautiful in there. I'm sure it can be like sunny every day and like you can live by a lake every day in your virtual world while the real quote-unquote real world just collapses and implodes and whatever so I'm fascinated by by that also um, you know outside of the business realm the ways in which we're going to imagine the environment that we that we live in like literally the environment that like places we go to to not be in this world
0: I love that you answered it that way because First of all, I just had some serious deja vu. So then I thought, oh, wow, the metaverse is working. But also when Julia asked about the metaverse, my head went straight to everything, everywhere, all at once. And I was thinking like the metaverse, like fantasy the metaverse. The multiverse. So when you answer that, so like, oh, that makes so much more sense to me. Um, I was You're thinking, thinking the of multiverse. the matrix.
1: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so I'm so glad that you cleared that up for me. <laughs>
1: I mean it might be I think the metaverse will be a multiverse like it will be mm-hmm. it won't be one singular uh space because people won't be invited into all spaces there'll be exclusive spaces there'll be extremely violent spaces there'll be spaces of different interest um and then there'll be questions of access like uh there's going to be a digital divide in these realms as well and like yeah it's it's but I think it's coming I think it's coming for us in the next in the next few years and Um, I don't know I just try to stay away from predictions but like um, see it more as like kind of like what kind of things have we set in motion that then we can't claim to have not seen coming so it's slightly different from predictions but yeah I think that that's the next big turn a mix with that and
0: an AI of
1: course which is becoming it seems like incredibly more sophisticated by the day right whether it's image or video production or uh, language itself so the mishmash of all of this is something we, I think, can't even quite imagine from from here, because it never really turns out the way we we think it will.
3: That's true.
2: I've got a question, and uh, it, sorry, it's unrelated to the metaverse, but it is a question. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so when you when you put this out, you can piece this, edit this to a previous point. It's just something I've been sitting here thinking, and I thought about this for a while. And it's back to collaboration, perhaps, perhaps in care and all these things. Is that I think. You know, Mel and I have talked a little bit about how our collaboration works and why it came together and how we do that. But I'm really interested for you two, like mm-hmm. how and why you collaborate. Like, I, I don't know yeah, about anybody true. else, but I've had loads of collaborations that have been successful in some ways and, and a lot of them have fallen apart because I think collaboration is really hard for a lot of different reasons. Um, so, so true. How, yeah, right. So, how how mm-hmm. come it works for you two? Like, what do you think works and what do you get out of it?
0: That's a great question.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think. Steffi and I
3: have a similar sensibility, maybe in the way that we approach surveillance. Um, Like, you know, we do study very different aspects of surveillance, but we are interested in maybe some of the nooks and crannies that haven't been explored um, in mainstream surveillance studies. and you know, we're both artistic, creative people. So I think we kind of resonated on that level that we wanted to do something exploratory around surveillance. Um, And that and being together kind of allowed us to indulge (laughs) some of our weirdnesses.
0: I think also we so we started collaborating in 2017. Um, We were doing our PhDs together. Julia was in a year Uh, in front of above me above me however you'd say it and um, I think we you know we've always kind of been friends mainly because our relationship we were the only two that we really knew at the time in the cultural science program at Queens who were doing surveillance so we would you know talk back and forth about things like that and I think as time has progressed I think one of the things I love about working with Julia is there's a sense of like kookiness like there's this funny kind of Ability to be shamelessly who I am around Julia in a way that I don't feel open really around other colleagues. And I think that has allowed me to be a very authentic, careful version of myself. And, you know, probably in a way that I give Julia a lot more than I would give to another person. And I think that has allowed me to trust Julia in decisions. Uh, that perhaps I wouldn't necessarily feel in other collaborative, because I've also collaborated many times before with other people, and it's just never been long-lasting, or like you said, Susan, it's just not, it doesn't feel as peaceful. Um, And I think when I speak with Julia, there's really this really good connection between our friendship and the care and then the scholarly stuff. And in the end, if we come up with something that is super absurd and that nobody else understands, it's fine because it's almost like enough for us. And I think we've come up when we first made our first cam hunter video, we showed it to all of our friends. We were so proud. I was like, look at this new video. And everybody (laughs) laughed at us. Like, what are you talking about? Like cam hunters (laughs) is going nowhere. (laughs) And we're like, we were so, we're like, no, 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 this is going to be the next best thing. Just watch. And uh, I remember us
3: cackling like (laughs) like, as we were editing it and just we thought it was the most amazing. It was like
0: so low budget. It was absurd. You know, it was so bad. The quality's awful. And everyone looked at us like we were ridiculous. And then uh, I think after we kind of hit that point, everything just started developing more where we started just making more and more absurd projects. And, you know, we, we've done some very serious things too, that have served us as instructors and as researchers and as artists, but Uh, I think it's really just nice to have somebody who gets to see me at my most vulnerable, authentic self. And whether, I don't know, Julia, if you feel that, but, uh, you know, we have some pretty deep conversations. And we have some really, like, ridiculous conversations where we just watch really awful movies together. So uh, I think also a collaborating, I will say, is finding someone you can travel with well. And I will say, (laughs) I think Julia and I travel with well. Like, I do think Julia is, like, one of my soulmates. I think that that's a... uh, so sweet. So sweet.
1: that was a very sweet story Steffi like I think that's so nice for that you share like that you just shared that because I think like we just don't ask each other those questions too often we don't have many opportunities and it just like it makes me like academia more it makes me think oh there are all these pockets of these like tender you know sweet relationships um that are I don't know, that produced different kind of work, whether it's quirky or whatever. And I, And then also, as you were talking, I was realizing how many instances of surveillance there are in saying like, you know, even when you said, oh, we do serious work, too. And I'm like, oh, that's because you're being surveilled and there are expectations about a particular kind of output. And then when you said, oh, I can be totally myself. And that's like a letting go of maybe expectations of how you're meant to be in particular context and so again to come back to care is like we feel a relief when we're off surveillance <laughs> like when we're not being tracked when we're not being assessed uh beautiful intimacies are possible and we get to be creative we get to be fun quirky and we get to make you know low quality low budget stuff that we love or whatever right so the the possibilities of of a life or like a friendship or um a project that is unsurveilled is really pretty remarkable. Like in in what you just said, so I love that. Yeah,
0: I love that because as you're saying that, it almost feels like Julia is like my anti-surveillance. You know, like we have really brutal conversations via FaceTime sometimes in the afternoon, and I am looking like a total mess. And Julia's like, "Are you okay?" But you know, I don't feel like I have to get up and do things like I normally would if I were to have a meeting with someone or there's no like strict timelines. If something happens that, you know, one of us is unavailable, the other is just like, yeah, you do it when you can, we don't have strict deadlines. Um, and I think that that's really what's interesting is we're fighting the surveillance machine through a way that is so anti that structure. And I think that's the care that's coming through.
1: I love that. That's yeah. And I think the, the pandemic for, you know, for everyone who had the privilege of working from home and hiding out a little bit for a while is that everyone reverted back to, you know, jogging pants and like, and like, you know, kind of scruffiness because we were unsurveilled. We were off the clock. We got to be comfortable. We got to be rested. Like it's, it's kind of like remarkable actually, when you get to revert back to this, not being watched and assessed like who the kind of human that you are, and in also in relation to others, but it's it's, yeah, I think it has, you know, hopefully changed the way we think about this a little bit in a permanent way. Like not eager to go back to being the person that is constantly surveilled to appeal to a kind of professionalism or whatever it is that we think we need to, to be doing,
2: yeah. Yeah, I feel super touched by that story, (laughs) Julie and Steffi. Thank you for sharing. It's really, I don't know, it's very, very Mm -hmm. kind. And and the word that kept coming to me beyond intimacy and care was vulnerability Mm -hmm. and how academia and a multitude of professional environments really preclude certain amounts of vulnerability, right? Because it feels like you you, you can't do that in certain ways and, and feel safe, right? And safety operates in a really different Different manner of ways, depending on positionality and precarity and a variety of different factors. But I do think having clarity of what these collaborative relationships are and what they offer us. Cause sometimes you can have collaborations that are much more distance, right? It's a very function they go through. Mm-hmm. But I do think having collaborations that bring together um the vulnerabilities and safeties and intimacy of a friendship with that does have a particular tenor. And, and I think, you know, at early at the beginning when I was saying, you know, what work I'm doing and trying being like, what is work? Where do I find space for work in this? Cause I've definitely found as I've continued in my career, the it's kind of, you know, my space for creative thought and like fun engagement has definitely diminished and partly that's by choice. And partly that's the pressures that comes with mid-career expectations of working in a university and it's very different for women and non-binary people, queer people, racialized people, black and indigenous people, right? Like it's very um, disabled people. It becomes, it's a very, very different expectation of what, who has to bolster and uphold the service and academic citizenship of a a post-secondary institution. And I think that um, having spaces where you can be vulnerable and feel supported, um, what we call, you know, Friendship (laughs) outside these like collegial relationships is super important to make sure that you can maintain your role in the institution as best you can. So sometimes having these, you know, lovely friendships that also function as part of your working life, if you can be clear on the boundaries and expectations and care of them is a really, really powerful way to ensure the sustainability of your intellectual and emotional life doing this work, you know? And work. I don't mean research work. I mean doing the work of an institution that that wants to isolate and alienate you from from your from your labor.
0: Mm. Wow, Julia, look, you look like... Oh my God, I didn't realize I had such a good friend. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, it's just like you know, I'm just blown away by this conversation. And yeah, um, yeah, and but I am conscious of time. I don't want to keep you too long. So, um, as we come to the end of our time. I guess we want to put the question to both of you Um, from your standpoint and from the work that you do, what do you think um, is the most important thing that surveillance studies should be focusing on right now?
1: Do you want me to start Susan? I I feel like surveillance is obviously more your thing than mine. So mine will just be almost like uh, a non-answer and I'm sorry. I just am kind of, unable to get outside of the pandemic and so mm-hmm. for me surveillance in whatever way related to these times so the pandemic as a social political uh you know cultural environmental biological etc kind of like um thing that we are in and in for uh i think the long haul um i think sur- surveillance in relation to the pandemic is probably this thing that mm-hmm. in my mind seems to have to be a priority um I'm just so unable to ever think outside of the pandemic and so it's sort of a personal answer like I, I I'm not following uh, surveillance studies that closely but I would love some orientation of surveillance towards sort of this particular predicament there's a kind of urgency around it mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I I
2: totally agree I think there's the the pandemic has revealed so, so many things. And I think it's been also beautifully articulated earlier. The foundation's always been there. It's not new, right? Like this right-leaning, this, this move towards fascism and very, very overt and violent racism on a multitude of levels. It's always been there and now it's pushed forward. I, I totally agree. But there's a lot of work to be done there to make sense and articulate those dynamics. And I think for me, there'd be two main but interrelated areas I think surveillance studies should go or that the surveillance studies should think about. One is... You know, as I've I've said this in different points here, in other words, is that we need to be more precise with our applications of surveillance. Because when we're not precise, we empty it of meaning, right? It becomes just this kind of blanket term and it doesn't it doesn't do the analytical work that we need it to do. So that would be the first thing I think everyone should be working on being more precise with the terms they use. And I think more importantly to that is what I think, the research that I find the most interesting is people who work within and for a community. And a lot of times that can be local. Sometimes it's, you know, broader than that. But I think people need to be really clear on what work they're doing and why they're doing it for. So again, kind of going back to the ethics accountability. So, so, so thinking about what are the resonances and significance of the work I'm doing and, and to whom. And that doesn't mean that everyone, you know, always has to be an activist or people have to like, you know, however they want to position themselves, that that feels too much, if it's too much you know what we call like the critical distance of academic work that feels too intense but I do think people need to to insert themselves and think about the positionality more within their work and think about what is the responsibility of the work we're doing and who is that responsibility for right so it's not just about getting an article published because I can because it looks good and I need it for an accounting my my cv for my my job and I understand again there's you know it's I'm, I'm a tenured faculty member like there's a lot, a lot of privileges of thinking about how and when I publish but I do think we need to be really responsible with the choices that we're making and to think about when I do this work who who who, who is my audience and, and why am I speaking to them and from what position so those are those are the two things I'll, you know it's coming out in real time I'm sure there'll be another later I should say but those are the two so precision of the terms we use and and and, and working with and, and speaking with the communities we feel we're responsible to
0: Those are great answers.
2: Yeah. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us.